chapter 11. And um, we're using the bulletins from last week since we didn't use them last week. And uh, so it's not January 31st. We don't operate by a different church calendar here. And then you have to go back to you know, being February when you walk out. It is February 7th, best I know. And uh, actually, I've, I've tweaked things a little bit. I'm going to be beginning in uh, chapter 11, verse 20. And I'm going to read just a, just a few verses past what you have here. Uh, you, you have the gist of what we'll be looking at, but I'll go a little bit um, beyond it. But John chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. And if you're visiting again, welcome. And uh, just so you'll know, we are studying this year through the Gospel of John. And uh, as we've said before, this is really f- for the history of the church been a go-to book of the Bible to really get at what is Jesus saying, doing, what is He claiming, what is He about. So we're studying it this year, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll go through till, uh, till the spring. Um, a lot on our minds about tragedy right now, certainly hearing from uh, Drew about Haiti and just even the things that you've seen and heard, uh, a lot about tragedy, massive loss of life. I want to I throw out to you, before we read this passage, a couple of takes on tragedy. One was shared with me by um, some friends of mine, a family that was ministering in New Orleans up till uh, Katrina. That was, they left town you know, with what stuff they could get in the car as Katrina was rolling in and um, ended up having to relocate. And, you know, when you, when you have just lived with the pictures, you know, in that case, bodies floating in, in rivers and creeks, um, towns wiped off the face of the map, or with Haiti, just rubble, dust, sadness, tears, loss, um, no more survivors, that kind of thing. You, you know, you get what people call compassion fatigue, where it's hard to feel it anymore, and you're ready for the silver lining, like, okay, we've... You know, we've been sad, but let's kind of get the clincher story that makes it okay in the end. Now, I want you to, to contrast these two. One was the comment of a lady who was speaking to one of my friends, the wife of this family that, that uh, was there. And this, this lady speaking to her as a Christian said this, I just think that we need to see uh, some of the great things that are coming out of this. And what she meant was, like, you will hear, as Drew said, stories of hope and redemption but the way she said it was glib. That I, I think we, you know, we're almost we're, we're focusing too much on the negative. Let's focus on the positive. And uh, my friend's response was simply to say this: Our pediatrician committed suicide. Now you know, dress that up. Those are my words, not hers. But I mean, it just basically takes the top off. There are things of a magnitude that you just cannot wrap up with a bow at the end. Now, for contrast's sake, uh, consider this. I just read this this week. Um, this, this lady who's a writer, she's describing her experience when she went to Turkey. There was this massive earthquake in 1999, and um, she describes her experience coming straight from that. I think she was probably both maybe reporting and, and, um, and assisting she comes straight from that. She gets off her transatlantic flight, and she's in an American airport. And she says this, Just off a transatlantic flight from covering the 1999 earthquake 
in Turkey, which killed over 17,000. I ordered coffee at Starbucks. I was dust-covered, unkempt, exhausted. I had come straight from the quake zone, watching all-night rescue efforts lit by generator-driven spotlights end in grief. The barista set before me one of those really tall coffee concoctions, and I could not pick it up. The carton, uh, the carton board cup with its creamy white cleanness assaulted my senses. It was an affront to the dust-laden, broken-up, shaken-down cityscape I'd inhabited the past week. Coming out of it felt like a betrayal. I stood frozen at the Starbucks counter and wept. Now, I suspect that as you hear those two, you think, well, if I was going to be one of those two people, who would I want to be more like? Probably more like the second. But then get, get what she says next. We Westerners, she's speaking us, first person, we Westerners excel at getting on with it, at binding up wounds and fixing what's broken or paying others to do it for us. We do less well with pausing to grieve, feeling the pain long enough, letting the pain be pain and do its work. And I relate to that. I'll tear up some... I'll be sad some, I'll maybe be up with my wheels spinning at night thinking about it some, but I, but I have my limit and I'm ready to get back to, let's, keep, let's get on with things. And what we're about to see is, um, it's a well-known passage, this is Jesus not only walking into a context of death, and death was a lot more in your face in that culture, but, and this is really important, This is the death of his close friend. Jesus was close friends with these siblings who apparently shared a home, Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary. They were his friends. You know, you you don't typically think of Jesus... You think of him loving everybody, but you don't typically think of him feeling like, I really love being with so-and-so. You know, in a particular way, he felt that way about Lazarus, and Lazarus has died... He is walking into a context of mourning, M-O-U, and weeping, and wailing, and loss. It was a lot bigger deal to lose the man in the house then than it is now. And I want you to see what he models to us. When we were here two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus being our shepherd. That he always gives the sheep what the sheep need. He leads the sheep where the sheep need to go. And and we need to watch him walk up to death as sheep to see what to do because it's in the future for all of us, other people's and ours. And what we're going to see him give us is something that's neither despair nor shallow hope. Neither despair nor wrapping everything up with a silver bow. He's going to give us something else. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, 
your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place In our nation, verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord our strength, and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word that I want to throw out 
before we go further because it has a lot to do with what we're going to look at from this passage. The word is triumphalism. Do you know what triumphalism is? I looked it up in one dictionary and it defined it as, uh, quote, an arrogant confidence in a set of beliefs. Now, the scriptures would commend a confidence in a set of beliefs, but this is an arrogant confidence in a set of beliefs. And, and what it can look like, especially in Christian circles, is this. Well, hey, okay, is the Bible true or not? Well, it's true. And if the Bible is true, then has Jesus fixed everything? Yeah, He has fixed everything. In fact, it says, and this actually came up a few weeks ago in a sermon, it says in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so what triumphalism can look like in the hands of a well-meaning Christian is kind of like they've got a giant rubber stamp that says Romans 8.28. And you come to a friend who's going through a divorce and you just stamp it. Hey, look, hey, God is going to do awesome things through this. He's going to work it all for good. Or you look at the news about Haiti and you stamp it. Or you lose a pregnancy, and, or you see someone lose a pregnancy, and the well-meaning person stamps it. And by stamping it, you know, by kind of wielding my stamp, I don't really have to wade into sadness and feel it. Because I know the facts, and the facts are, he fixes it at the end. That's triumphalism. And it stands to reason that in the more churchy a place, the more uh, openly Christian a place you go, the more you'll find that kind of triumphalism. Guess what that means for us? We're in Greenville. And it's the sheep that need to see the shepherd walking right up to a bunch of grief and a bunch of sadness and the loss of his close friend. And what he does, because, and here's what I want you to see, he does not model to us triumphalism. What he gives us is actual triumph. He does not model triumphalism. What he gives to us is triumph. That's what I want to look at. The absence of triumphalism, the presence of triumph. Okay, H- How do you see Jesus the great shepherd showing the sheep the absence of triumphalism? It's a couple of things. One is his rage, and the second thing is his tears. Now, first off, his rage, and you may go, what are you talking about, his rage? The passage never says that he's outraged, and it's a really weird thing. And I almost hesitate to to say this the way I'm going to say it, because I would never want anyone here to be reading their Bible and wonder, like, is this really what this says in the original, like, do I need to go get a PhD in Hebrew and Greek? I know you're all tempted to do that, but, you know, hold your seats. Don't, don't peel out in the parking lot just yet. We have unbelievably good and faithful translations, but there is this really weird thing about John 11, especially on the part of the English Bibles, and it's almost inexplicable because any really good commentary will point this out And English translators will not change. And it's in verses 33 and 38. You don't hear 
the words of, of rage or anger. Here's what it says. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, he sees Mary weeping, one of the sisters, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was, and here's the translation, deeply moved in his spirit. And then you get it again in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, that's adequate. But it's not severe enough of what it really says in Greek. What it says in Greek is used in other Greek literature to describe the snorts of war horses. And it's bellowing with outrage. And I don't want to sound like an idiot and try to impersonate it, but it's, it's what comes out of you vocally when you cannot verbalize how upset you are. It's, it's almost as if all your emotional and mental energy is going into how upset you are that you can't do the work of going through the little you know, vocabulary file to pick out the right entry, and you just... Ugh. He at least did that twice. Now, what's he mad at? When you see Jesus get this upset in the Scriptures, what is he mad at? Is he mad at people? And that just does not square with the rest of the Scriptures because of how he treats people. How it says that even the folks who are weeping and making a scene, Jesus prays certain things out loud for their sake. He's thinking about how they need to be ministered to. He's thinking about everyone there. But you see Jesus get most upset, anger, tears, when He comes face to face with powerful, visible demonstrations of how broken and fallen the world is. The city of Jerusalem just rejects Him. The city of all cities on earth that should have welcomed Him with open arms, and it stonewalls Him. And there's a scene in one of the Gospels where He just looks at Jerusalem and He just weeps. Loves the city, but he weeps. Because the world is that broken, it is that fallen, and it is going to take something cosmic to fix it. Here's a man that he loved, that he spent time with, who's his friend. And these shockwaves in this family and in this community, and Mary and Martha just crumpled, and he gets outraged at death and sin, and wades right into it. And then you get his tears. You know, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? It's a trivia question. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And let's be careful here, because if you're not careful, especially maybe we who are males, you'll mentally picture that he teared up. Now, the Greek verb that's used here is not the one for wailing and what you might see in Eastern cultures of just lying on the ground and throwing dust up in the air, but it is profusely crying. Uh, Dana and I have been married for 15 years. She has seen me, you know, tear up about things and, you know, kind of leak. You know what I mean, leak? <laughs> Where you're not really boohooing, it's, you know... It's like you start out watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition and you think, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm a grown man for crying out loud. And, uh, you know, about five till, uh, yeah, you are. Yeah, you're, you're going to be wiping something or you're going to all of a sudden have to go to the restroom to, you know, blow your nose or something. Um, 
Okay, she has seen me do that, but in 15 years of marriage, I've only burst into tears one time. And I, it was here in Greenville, and I was standing in the kitchen, and something finally just caught up with me. It wasn't anything that anyone did. Something just finally got all over me. Burst into tears. You know, where it moves, it, where it moves your chest the way laughter does. That's what Jesus did. Now, here's the amazing thing. Those are amazing responses in light of what He knows He is about to do. And we need to see that, that Jesus does not walk up and see all the sadness. And here's, you know, Mary and Martha both asked the identical questions. Did you catch that? Both of them came to Him, and the first thing they said were identical statements. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He doesn't just keep walking up with his hands on his pockets going, hey, look, I know you're totally sad, but this is about to be awesome. You're about to be happier than you are sad now. Buckle in. And all you people who are crying, you better go out and get drinks because this is about to be the biggest celebration. Anger. He's about to undo anger. Anger and rage, that this is what the world is really like. And you know, he could have raised any dead people he wanted to. But he didn't raise all the dead people in every town. He didn't raise all the dead people in Nazareth or Capernaum or Jerusalem. But this is a sign. He's using his good, good friend Lazarus and his death as a sign to the church. And to anyone who was there that day. And let me say this. For sheep to follow Him, I mean, ultimately, He is our forgiveness, but He is also our example. And there is a lesson here for us. The Scriptures don't just commend, they command the sheep to weep with those who weep. To mourn with those who mourn. Last year we looked at Ephesians, and and of all things, one of the commands in Ephesians is, be angry. And in your anger, do not sin. Be angry the way the shepherd was angry. And I, I would just say this without a lot of development. This is a great city. God, who has all the wisdom and all the power, He put us in Greenville, South Carolina right now. None of that is by accident. But we need to always be thinking about... What does this mean in our context? And I would say this about our context. Greenville does not just need more nice people. Greenville needs people who can laugh when it's time to laugh and who can set down the Romans 8.28 stamp when there is pain and grief and brokenness in front of them and weep with those who weep and even be angry at the sin and the loss and the fallenness and brokenness that is affecting everybody in this room right now. It's ripping up families. It's ripping up businesses. It's ripping up institutions. It's making people crushed and be mad about it. It's not nice, and it's Christ-like. You don't get triumphalism. You do get triumph. I'm going to be brief on this. How do you see triumph? Um, Martha, the first sister that speaks to Jesus, 
she makes one of the great professions of faith. And we need to see, really, what's under this profession of faith because, hey, I would love for us to be a group of people that can go out and extend real empathy, real humanity, humanness, with people who experience loss or death or pain. But do we have anything more than empathy? If all you have is empathy without truth, it's basically sentimentality. If all you get is truth without empathy, you get the, the rubber stamper. We can have empathy, but what's the truth that we hang on to? What's the triumph? When Martha says... I believe that you're the Christ. We tend to hear that as Jesus' last name, like he's Mr. Christ. It's a title. A Jewish person would understand that to mean you're the, the anointed one, which would mean you are the one who comes and fulfills what all the other anointed people did. You are the definitive prophet, priest, and king, all in one. All those people that were anointed back in the day, you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. How do you see all three of those here? We usually say prophet, priest, king. I'm going to do them in reverse order, okay? King, priest, prophet. Get it straight in my own mind. King, priest, prophet, king. What, What would be the ultimate demonstration of power? What's the ultimate demonstration of power? Have the biggest army? Have the most money? Get the most people to follow you? All that can be overturned. The ultimate demonstration of power would be to overturn death. Death is the enemy that no king has ever been able to overturn. And that's what he does. Uh, You know, I I hope this isn't kitschy to say this, but Christians for many centuries, have, have said, you know, can't prove this is the case. Maybe it's speculative. But it's interesting that he said, Lazarus, come out. Because when you're dealing with God the Son, if he had just said, come out, everybody would have come out. All the dead people. But he aims it at his friend. And the way people were buried back then, you know, you weren't, you weren't wrapped up like a mummy, but you would be covered with a sheet, your hands would be bound, and your feet would be bound. And this at least means that when he said that, and everyone, you know, I guess the words hang in the air for a little bit, a man wrapped up in burial cloth hobbles out of the grave. When we had our lessons and carol service back in December... One of the hymns that we sang is called, All My Heart This Night Rejoices. And I I thought about it in this passage. Because the first verse has got like angels, and the baby's born. It's very Christmassy, you know. The angels are singing, the Christ is born. That's kind of standard Christmas song fare. And then the next stanza says this, and this is awesome. Forth today the conqueror goeth, who the foe... Sin and woe, death and hell, or throweth. And that is the most amazing stark contrast, like baby, manger, angels in the sky, king riding out to meet sin and woe, death and hell, and he's not playing tiddlywinks. 
He's out to kill. And the sign for us is that if Jesus is able, before His crucifixion and resurrection, simply by being God the Son, to say, death, end, come to me. And a man comes to Him, He has all authority. And the proof of that is that everyone who saw it told everybody else. I mean, if you had once had dinner with Peyton Manning, would you not today, at least, hijack every conversation today to fly it over to how you had dinner with Peyton Manning? Whether the conversation had anything to do with that or not. Yeah, anyway, back to me and Peyton Manning. What if you were dead for four days? I mean, you, that would even beat the, I died on the operation table and saw the tunnel with light and saw my body there. And it would even beat that. I mean, you could even trump that person's story with, yeah, um, I started to decompose. <laughs> and here I am. Everyone talked about this. And the proof of that is that, verse 53, the Jewish leaders saw that we've got to kill this guy. I mean, if this goes on, they said everyone's going to believe in him. In fact, they actually made a plot not only to kill him, but to kill Lazarus. It says that in chapter 12. And here's the irony. Is that plot played right into God's hands. Christ is priest. Old Testament priests were accustomed to working with animals who had become sacrifices. But Old Testament priests did not become sacrifices. And Christ, the definitive priest, is not only administer, administrator, He is the sacrifice. They did kill Him. And when they did that, it did things that no one could have dreamed. It took away the sins of God's people. It broke the power of sin in their lives. But I want to read you one thing that it did. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, quote, he describes our Savior Christ Jesus. This is 2 Timothy 1.10. Get this who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And when you go after an enemy, you try to abolish the enemy. He abolished death. He abolished it. But I want to end with this just quickly. He's the prophet. What do prophets do? They speak to you what God wants you to know. And did you catch what Jesus said to Martha when she came out to Him? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Your brother's going to rise again. Well, I know he's going to rise again at the final resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus says this, not, I can tell you how to find resurrection. I'll teach you about resurrection. What does He say? I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in Me, He won't die. He'll he'll live. 
And then he says this, do you believe that? Do you believe this? And that is the Gospel of John, friends. It's over and over Jesus saying, do you believe this? Just a few weeks ago, he heals a blind man. We think, awesome, his biggest problem taken care of. Then Jesus goes and finds the guy again, tap, tap, tap. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You get to the end of John's Gospel, doubting Thomas, I'm not going to believe in this until I can put my finger, my hand, in the nail wounds, until I can put my hand in his side. One day Jesus walks into a locked room. And is it just a party? Awesome, I thought you were dead. You're not dead. Or you came back from the dead. This is awesome. And Jesus essentially says, yeah, I know. You need to stop doubting. You need to believe. Do you believe? Because you saw Thomas, blessed are those who believe who haven't seen me. And I want to ask us, just as we close, do you believe? Because that is not my question to you. That is Christ's question to everybody. We will lose our friends and our family. And for us personally, unless we happen to be alive when He comes back, no one gets out of this alive. Do you believe that in the downtown, if Christ came back, this may sound like crazy talk to you, but if Christ came back on a Friday night, that the busiest place in the downtown area would not be Main Street. It would be Springwood Cemetery and the Christ Church churchyard. That's where the most people will be. And they will rise, and we will rise, to judgment, the second death, or to life. And Jesus doesn't come along and say, hey, look, don't be sad about dying because you had an awesome life and you ate great food and had fun friends. You will die. And those you love will die. I've abolished death. If, you, if you're born once and only once, you'll die twice. You'll die on this earth, and then you'll die in the age to come. If you're born twice, born as a baby, and then born again, you'll only die once. And it will only be a stepping over from life to life. The work of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, for doing what we could not do, for those who struggle to believe. We thank You that You've triumphed over death. Have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us as we perhaps believe but need You to help us in our unbelief. For those who face death, their own or others, Lord, show Yourself as the one who gives life and who has abolished death itself. We pray in His name. Amen.